Kristen. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here on our podcast today. And just for point of clarification, people are going to be like, who is she talking to? Who is this Kristen person? <laughs> so, so first I'm going to say Kristen is my cousin. Point of disclosure, full transparency. <laughs> and will I be talking to other family members? Maybe the cool ones. The, no, <laughs> I'll be talking to our unapologetically black unicorns, which are a lot of folks in our family like you. So why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm third generation Harlem, as you already know, but for listeners. And my family has had some deep roots and some interesting history here. And now I'm running for city council for District 9. And I'm also an activist and an organizer. I'm a poet. I've, I've done two poetry books. I've been a teacher the past 10 years. And uh, I would say I would say the biggest piece about me that's the uh, unapologetic Black unicorn is that I am a adamant abolitionist and, and political rabble rouser and, you know, getting into that good trouble, so to speak. And I've been like that since I was young, like, <laughs> since, since uh, you came out of the womb ball. that way, yeah. I, think. <laughs> like, I was like, Oh, <laughs> I'm out. Let's protest. Yeah. But it's, it's about like the beautiful history of resistance and freedom fighting and, and black liberation. I see myself as part of that. And then being a woman is just twofold, you know, we're just gonna like, do it up even more because our um, presence and, and our beauty deserves that. And then, you know, I'm also a survivor. That's another thing that I am. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a survivor of, of domestic violence. I had a psychotic break. There was a time when I was hospitalized. I've gone through my own mental and emotional health struggles. I was diagnosed with adjustment disorder when I left uh, that abusive relationship. And then also just in general, in life, I've gone through bouts that have been uh, not necessarily diagnosed depressed, but where I certainly have felt depressed. And I think part of being that Black unicorn has been finding my center and, and being okay with my emotions, whatever they are and wherever they are, and validating them, finding my truth and my power in that. So I don't know, is that what you mean when you say Black unicorn? It means whatever you want it to mean. So yeah, I think a, a, black, a unicorn is, you know, people call me a black unicorn. And I thought, oh, what, what does that mean? Or they'll tell me, oh, you're like a magical, mystical unicorn. And I'm thinking, I, there are, what? <laughs> so I think of unicorns as um, when I ask them, well, what, what do you mean by that? They'll say, well, you're just so powerful or you're so centered. You're so strong. You believe you, your beliefs are really strong and you act on those beliefs, not just for yourself, but on behalf of other people. And that's kind of a rare trait. So unicorns tend to be kind of rare animals. If, well, they're, they're mythical. <laughs> no, they're not. They're really alive and we are them. <laughs> So yeah, and so black unicorns can be black people, but there's there's also um, a difference between, from symbolism, black unicorns and white unicorns. And so black unicorns are just as I've described, where white unicorns may be seen as more um, ethereal, more sort of mist, like the really mystical. They're always seen sort of with this kind of 
white aura around them, almost angelic. And you know, not that black unicorns couldn't be angelic, of course, but there is this sort of power, strength, drive, passion that really speaks to what black unicorns are all about. And I added the word unapologetically because, you know, we speak truth to power. And even if we have to do that in different ways, I'm a very much an um, inside advocate. So the way that I've learned how to speak truth to power may look a little bit different than how an outside activist or advocate does that, but we need both. And so you got the black unicorn thing going on. You got the unapologetic <laughs> thing going on for, for sure um, since I've known you, which is basically since birth. So um, <laughs> um, I'm wondering if it's a family trait. Do you think that we're like... We're pretty awesome as a family. So, so you said that you're running for city council. And I just, you know, I've been watching your campaign and just really, really impressed how you came up with sort of the campaign and looking at the word Harlem and what does Harlem mean to you? And then coming up with what each letter would mean as far as what you stand for in the campaign. Can you talk a little bit about that? So my platform actually spells out Harlem. So the H is about holding police accountable and abolition. I'm advocating for an elected civilian review board, which would be a local body that could fire and suspend police officers in cases of abuse or neglect. Uh, the A is for actually affordable housing. It's housing as a human right. Um, people like to joke about the actually, but the reason why I had to put a qualifier is because we've been making up a lot of things as being so-called affordable um, and lumping Harlem in with other parts of Manhattan. So I'm really pushing to have the affordability metric be defined by zip code so that it can actually relate to where the the average income is in our district. Uh, the R is about redistribution of wealth and resources, taking care of those most in need and most oppressed. And yes, I am calling for taxes. That would be on some of the wealthiest New Yorkers. Um, I'm calling for that in the form of a land value tax. It would be a tax on vacant property and um, vacant apartments. It would incentivize to lower the rents uh, and fill the vacant spaces and to make use of the vacant spaces. And then we could also have that as extra revenue. The L is living longer. It's a care package for our Harlem seniors um, because they have been overlooked and neglected. Our district does skew older. Uh, so I wanna increase senior care. And then E is education and environment and M is meaningful change. And the meaningful change piece is, is where I pull it all together and, and talk about some of the symbolic change um, because I would be the third woman ever elected to represent Harlem. I would be the youngest mm. black woman um, at 34, which I insist is not that young. I insist it's a real age, but I would be the youngest black woman in the seat and the first out LGBTQ person in the seat. But the meaningful change is about not just that symbolic stuff, but actually having a, a city council seat that's focused on people power and centering the community's voice. Snap, 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 snap. I'm over here just like that. <laughs> I want to have words, but I don't have words, but I have so many words. And here's here's one of the things that that really, well, the whole thing strikes me as so coordinated, actionable, versus kind of like, well, here's something I'm saying and there's no action behind it. There's no way to actually do it. And there's no metric to measure it. So I really, really um, like how you put that platform together. And the one that I'm kind of gonna ask about because it's something I've been thinking about and I can't, I've not heard this from you. So 
you know, we have a big um, homelessness problem, right, in, in LA. So a lot of people experiencing homelessness out on the streets for all sorts of reasons. And everybody says, we need to build more housing. We need to build more housing. And I'm like, well, no, there's plenty of housing. I live in Hollywood. I live in Los Angeles County. We are crammed in. There is plenty of housing here. What I have always been curious about are why are there so many buildings, apartments, commercial buildings, if they were previously commercial buildings, why are they empty? And they sit empty for years. Exactly. So you're going to build more when there's empty stuff. So somebody actually did a a study around looking at all of the properties that are here, doing a census, if you will, of all of the property, especially the the property that's empty and figuring out like who owned it and how long it had been empty. So the first thing is they did a count of all the empty property or the uh, vacant property. And they found that there is far more availability of housing or property than there are people who experiencing homeless in the homelessness count. So that's one thing. So that tells you we have enough. Then the other thing they found is that it is uh, prospectors or in, uh, investors that invest in the property and hold on to it, waiting to turn a profit so it can remain empty for several years, either waiting for a community to turn over, regentrification, if you will, then they sell. So they buy low, sell high. Um, but for years and years and years, that sits empty. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I'm talking about, is that people sit on the property. And, you know, it's an investment, but the thing is, is that we have those users it like as if it's gold like right so yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy this investment then I'm gonna sit on it it's gonna be empty and then I'm gonna wait for values to go up and then I'm gonna sell it and I'm gonna make more money off of it the only issue is that it's not gold it's housing and yeah. we have people without housing yeah and as long as you sit on it what is your responsibility because of the possible displacement of that person is there any kind of responsibility you have and um how can you kind of own up to that responsibility Absolutely. so yeah and i would argue that the value is the communities as well so right so when the value of this property goes up i don't think it's just that one individual who should benefit that value increase it, it was collectively created. So that should turn back into yeah. the community. So that's my argument for a tax on the vacant space. Wow. Wow. That's really brilliant is all I have to say. That's really, really excellent. How did you end up becoming Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, what was it? The Courage of Change? Is that is that the name of her? Yes. Yeah. Tell me, tell me um, about all of that, that you're ranked as the number one um, candidate for the district. Yes, it's very How does exciting. that happen? Yeah. Well, we're, yeah. We've been having a mini party over here because a lot of us are fans. And so it was great to receive that endorsement. So how it happened was there was a an application that went out for the Courage to Change badge. In my district, four people applied. So I was ranked uh, number one. That's been awesome and a blessing. You know, uh, for me, it, it's not that I have the exact same politics because I don't. I actually differ from AOC in some very concrete ways. I'm really strong advocate for reparations, which is not something that she has talked a lot about, reparations for the Black community. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also an advocate for um, economic growth when it comes to small businesses, micro businesses, and the neighborhood mom and pop shops, which sometimes in that lens, 
sense of socialist that gets totally swept away as if we're not going to pay attention to economic development on that level. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm an advocate for economic development on that level where it is um, very community based and, and I wanna see that grow. You know, when I talk about taxes and redistributing wealth, I'm talking about the big guys and, and I'm not talking about um, our local mom and pops. So, so there's some very key differences policy-wise, but big picture, AOC is someone who speaks truth to power and I admire that. And she was part of this wave of a new Congress where we had this great representation of women of color, you know, so not just her, but Rashid Tlaib and, and Ayanna Presley and, and um, Ilhan Omar and, and, you know, that whole squad and, and others who have just been speaking the truth and, and running these races and winning and being mm -hmm. powerful women of color while doing it, just badass. Yes. So. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're you're that yeah. badass woman. You're just going for it. And <laughs> I so appreciate it. And the other thing I was really um, impressed by is all of the community development work that you've done, especially during the pandemic when, you know, it was supposed to be stay at home orders and social distancing and all of the things that we were supposed to be paying attention to, which you were paying attention to while you were meeting the needs of, of our, of the community. I say our communities, you're in Harlem, but when, I'm when I say our communities, I'm talking about the disproportionate impact of COVID on black and brown folks. And so um, I saw that you were doing wellness checks. And when I say wellness checks, tell me what it, tell me what a wellness check is in the way that yes. you were doing it. Yeah, so we were so we were actually going door to door and checking on our neighbors. We were doing masks and socially distanced, but we wanted to make sure that people had food. So so here's the thing is that um our communities were highly impacted pre-COVID, right? We already had issues of, of food insecurity. We already had higher rates in almost everything across the board when you talk about ill health outcomes. We already had high rates of poverty. So uh, the impact of COVID made it just that much worse. So mm -hmm. the wellness checks that I and my team that we did in the community, it was really about how do we exercise mutual aid and sort of walk our talk where we're, we're advocating for all of these policy shifts. And I'm, I'm still an advocate for those. But at the same time, it's like this pandemic's going on. We need to actually just roll up our sleeves and, and do some of the work, the community work of directing people to resources, of distributing food, of bringing groceries, doing some clothing drives. And um, we looked at childcare and even helped people sort of link up with their childcare. So it was a lot of how do we just collectively help the community with basic needs and using my campaign as a structure to do that. And, um, and I, I'm I'm very proud of that work. And, you know, even beyond the electoral arena, I'm just proud of it as something we did as Harlemites for our fellow yes. Harlemites. You yes. Know? It's the community yeah. taking care of the community. Yes. It's yeah. Like, a lot of the work that we do or that I do in particular with others around sort of mental health, mental health reform, a lot of time it's it tends to look like it is the mental health system that is supposed to support us. And, and I say, well, yes, and... You know, we need to help communities support each other. Used to be back in the day before I even was born or you were born that, uh, you know, neighbors used to take care of each other. Na neighbors mean something different now. You know, as I look around my community here in, in Hollywood, you know, people will call police on folks who are struggling versus trying to figure out how they might um, 
and I'll say safely because you, sometimes you just don't know. I get it. You don't know. I, I'm kind of like if, if somebody's struggling, what is it that they need? How can I help? And then I had taught my neighbors to think about, well, what can you do? And, and one of my neighbors said, I don't even know what I could do. Maybe I should just be dialing 911. And I said, well, maybe keep some water, bottles of water, keep um, fresh socks and keep them with you when you're when when you're walking um you know, out of the house, if you're passing somebody who's struggling, you know, ask them if they could use some water or some socks. That's a start. Get to know who they are, get to know their story. And, you know, because they're our neighbors, whether they're physically housed or not, they are here, they are living here, um, and they are our neighbors. So uh, you've taken these actions to a whole huge level with your campaign and was very, very impressed with that. And seeing so many young people too. Yeah, we, we're, we're a young crew. We're a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings. That's good, right? Because it, yes. in, that's the involvement we need in terms of, of making some change in our community. And, um, and I do want to say that, that one of the things we did, because it wasn't just door-to-door, we did also do outreach with the houseless. And that presented particular challenges, but we still worked on what can we do on a mutual aid level there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has been unique uh, for me as a candidate is that I've made a real commitment to house the homeless in this district. And it's one of those things that I've said, if I can get the rest of the city council on board and do it at a citywide level, then we will. But even if I can't, I personally will commit my discretionary funds to housing some of the homeless in oh, this that's district, great. because I really believe that we can see better outcomes across the board when we take steps to house people. And, and I'm ready to prove that. Yeah, it's one of those social determinants of health. It's hard to yeah. be fully healthy if you don't have a, a house exactly. and the wherewithal to do that. Exactly. How did you get even interested in running for this? This one caught me off guard. I was like, you're doing what? I mean, it wasn't <laughs> a surprise as in you're doing what? No, that it doesn't even make any sense. It actually was like, you're doing what? Yeah, okay. I totally 1000% get it. So, but, but tell me how you kind of came to this uh point to where you decided that you were going to run for city council? Well, it was a real combination of things. So, I mean, the first I, I already credited, but like AOC and the squad and some of the new Congress really opened up my imagination to even just the possibility of elected officials who were about community. Because before that, you, I would have just written, written folks off and said, oh, basically anyone running for office is a sellout and they're about ego, and they're about money, and it's not really about the community, and I have no interest in it. So that that's where I was before, just being perfectly honest. I um, remember those days, Kristen. <laughs> you remember Wa- the days. Oh, exactly. walking on like, the pier, walking on the pier, right? And, <laughs> walking and on the pier like, and just talking oh, about we, it. Yeah, and people will be like, oh, we need political change. And I'm like, no, nah, yeah. it's never going to happen. Politicians yes. will never, ever do it. Never, yes. ever. So I, so I was very much on the outside the system side of things where it's just, we're getting nowhere fast with this political arena and I'm not interested. So the, but the, the shifts in the new Congress really opened my mind to the possibility, like the, you know, just the imagination, my political imagination to the possibility of something really different. Mm-hmm. And then that in combination with, uh, as I said in the beginning, my, my own survivor story. So one of the things that we learn when we're, we're working on healing is 
to recenter ourselves, right? Because it's like, if I'm with this person and I'm overextended, it's like everything is about that person. Everything is about trying to, you know, accommodate or deal with or attend to that person. And there's an overextension. So part of my healing was uh, recentering on me. And so what are what are my gifts? What are my talents? What are my skills? Um, what brings me joy? What do I think I have to give to the world? And so that connected to it too, um, because the the strongest pull I had to run for office actually came after a time I spent meditating. So I really do feel called in that way. I really mm-hmm. do feel a, a, a spiritual walking my path. That's part of it as well. And then lastly, you know, I was angry enough and, you know, we get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get there. I was angry enough at my local elected who uh, voted to spend $10 billion on new jails mm. and, and do that at the expense of our Harlem community who, where we are so over-criminalized and, and the last thing we need is more jail cells. And, you know, I, I was like, how can you possibly vote for this? How can you possibly represent me and vote for this? No, you cannot. Yeah. You cannot yeah. represent me about for this. So, so, part, so part of it is is that that place of just anger as well is like it's mm-hmm. enough. It's anger enough. turned to action. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and then um, we were talking earlier about sometimes there there are things that you may stand for that may rub against people. And I think you said a little bit around uh, the reparations issue, but you also talked about some of the things around sort of the um, abolitionist and, you know, we're doing a lot of work in mental health around, uh, you know, decriminalization, um, helping people who have mental health crisis not have police response. So what does it mean when you say um, abolitionist? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah, it really means belief in this possibility of a world without jails. I understand how that gets scary for people because, for a variety of reasons, I think mostly due to social programming, but people's minds go right to this idea of just chaos in the streets. But what I mean when I talk about abolition, and and many of us do, is, is the idea of a presence of community care and systems so that there is this large social safety net and there's an emphasis on prevention. Like, I would like to see interventions you know, as early as kindergarten, like just young kids in in interacting with each other and saying, oh, well, here are interpersonal skills. Here are mental, emotional ways of interacting when you have conflict. Here are ways of tuning into yourself and your own emotions. And here are ways of communicating with other people. And there, there are so many tools. We haven't even begun to explore the tools because we have not invested in them and we have not explored them to the level that we really can uh, because our first gut reaction so often when someone is is out of order is to go with shame and go with criminalization and go with locking that person up. I mean, sometimes I felt that way, you know, as a, well, you know, I, I live with a mental health condition and sometimes it would get a little interesting as I call it. And, you know, when I was in, in, in crisis or really struggling, it was the police who responded. and it was never really good. That was never really a good response for me. Um, and then I would, you know, end up hospitalized in, a, in locked units. And, you know, as I think of it, looking back, I, I always wonder if people were uncomfortable, they were uncomfortable, you know, with what they were seeing me go through first and then like make that stop. 
Like, I, I, I don't want to watch that. That looks so discomfort. Like, you're making me uncomfortable. Like, just make it stop. So rather than kind of sitting with the person and saying, okay, you know, um, I'm going to have to sit with my discomfort of seeing you uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, seeing you and what may be scary, that's really scaring me. That's why I want it to stop. So I, um, you know, have always wondered what we what we could be doing better to meet people where they are in their struggles and walk along with them during that time of struggle versus trying to just shut it down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the response we have is dangerous. I mean, there's a, a, there's a very famous case here in Harlem, um, Muhammad Ba case and Muhammad Ba's mother, Hawa Ba called for an ambulance because Muhammad had had a psychotic break. And she was very clear that it was mental illness and that she wanted an ambulance and she wanted medical. Uh, But it was the police who showed up Mm -hmm. and the police wound up shooting Muhammad eight times and killed Mm -hmm. him, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's horrible. And she's one of the mothers of the movement. Now she talks about how can we have first responders and have a different response and, and have it be medical uh, especially in cases where people expressly ask for an ambulance, expressly yeah. ask for it to be medical. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate this uh, approach that's far more on the prevention side that you're talking about, far more humanistic, working with people from a, a very human frame. Um, what kind of tools are there that uh, maybe could be used, um, you know, in kindergarten or preschool or Head Start programs? Yeah, so I think so. I think restorative justice is a, a model we can begin to use where um, people who, who you know, and, and we could start this with young kids, you know, so-and-so kicked the other one in the sandbox. Okay, so let's, this, and this is not usually what we do, but let's sit down and have a conversation about why and where did that come from? and what's the energy and then apologize and then how to make amends and actually get at the matter of what went on. But usually what happens is, oh, okay, so Jacob, you go to the corner, your timeout, and then that's it. You know, (laughs) there's no actual exploration into what took place and where the conflict was and what happened. It's sort of a a way of us as teachers, because I've been a teacher the past 10 years. So I'll say it's, it's a way for us as teachers and adults to let ourselves off the hook, because then we don't have to sit and explore that conflict. And we can just do it really quickly and hand out, okay, here's the timeout or here's the punishment and be on about our way. And we can keep the classroom controlled in that way. But if we mm-hmm. took the time early on and we invest the time early on, then we would see different kids. Like we would see di- yeah. different humans develop. Yeah. I, I always wonder too about, you know, people who bully, who end up being bullies or abusers. If we have different ways of working with them when they're younger, um, sometimes we might find out that they have their own trauma experience that then is being expressed in their behavior because they don't have any other behavior. They don't have any other language. They may be, you know, mimicking the behavior or language of, um, you know, from, from what's coming possibly from some kind of abuse. So I think so. I profoundly believe that. I don't, yeah. I believe um, I don't believe there's sort of this, you know, natural evil element in people. I just think I just don't believe that about humankind. So I think it's about um, 
what seeds get planted and and not planted and how Mm -hmm. it gets watered or not watered. And then Mm -hmm. from that place, that's how I get to a place of saying, well, we could we could construct a different type of world and it wouldn't be a perfect world. It wouldn't be utopia, but we could construct a nonviolent world, Mm -hmm. at least a less violent world. And if we start and move towards less violent then I think we really have to look at the state and the state being a source of violence. Wow. Wow. That's very powerful. And do you write about this in your writing? I know, well, I know a few books. (laughs) Yeah, I have two poetry books. I get to plug my books now. I write. I write. Um, I write a lot about it in um, my latest book. The the one I wrote most recently is called Water and Light: Choose Love Now. Um, and that's a really personal chronicle of of my personal experience with an abusive relationship, with adjustment disorder, then uh, with having gone through a false arrest. But it's also at the same time I talk about personal, I talk about systemic. Like, how do we heal? Like, how do we heal as uh, collectively? How do we heal from this place of of so much turmoil and violence? And and I don't mean just literal violence, although we have that too, but also the violence of poverty and the violence of mm. homophobia, the violence of patriarchy. Like, we have a lot of of really aggressive, really hurtful ways of being and thinking and acting yeah. that we need to address and heal from. So yeah, that's called Water and Light, Choose Love Now. And then um, for my campaign, the slogan is Disrupt the District with Radical Love. So you see there's a theme. (laughs) (laughs) There's a theme (laughs) based on just a a greater love for humanity and how we center that, how we work to center that. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, you've also used a term I'm not, I'm actually not familiar with, which is, you know, as long as I've worked in mental health, which is um, adjustment disorder. Like, what is that? I don't even know what that is, really. Yeah, so it, well, I learned it, too. I learned it as I went through it. I learned what this mm-hmm. term meant. Um, but actually, so when people go through trauma and they experience PTSD, oftentimes there's there's a period. There's a period in which you have the same symptoms, the similar PTSD symptoms, and it can last for six months to a year And then the symptoms actually fade. Hmm. And when that happens, it's called adjustment disorder. If it continues on, it gets diagnosed as PTSD. So it basically has to do with the symptoms and what I experienced with my trauma brain lasting about six months um, and and not extending to the period where it would normally then get diagnosed as PTSD. I see. I see. That's helpful for people to understand kind of if I haven't heard the term, I'm guessing other people haven't. Or sometimes if I haven't have heard the term, I want to make sure that, you know, anybody listening understands what some of these terms mean. So if we had to think about like if there's a takeaway um, and, and you've given us so many, quite frankly, but, you know, if there's one takeaway about what people could do to change something in their own life or in their own community, what, what would that be? Uh, it would it would be the best advice that that I've gotten along the way, which is um, if you feel the need to make change, you should never wait. You should just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't have to be a big just do it. It could just be one small step like you were talking mm-hmm. about with the water and the socks. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's one simple step, mm-hmm. you know, towards eradicating homelessness. OK, that's huge. But yes. 
I could have some water and some socks. That's amazing. I think, you know, we like to use the word empowerment and I like to use the word power. I think everybody has power within them that we just have to help them um, execute that power rather than saying we have the power, we give it to you, thus we've empowered you. So, um, you know, this conversation, I think it is empowering and I hope for people Uh, they realize, yes, they can do that one small step. They can do that one thing. They can just do it. Um, And also they don't need to do it alone. I mean, you, you built up a coalition, a group of people. So uh, reach out, uh, you know, to your next door neighbor, to your friends, make some friends. Yeah. 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 Cause I think for some people that might be kind of scary, just do it. How do I do it? Right. Um, But we don't always have to do those things alone, but we do have the power to do them within ourselves. So Um, I want to thank you for spending this time with me, Kristen. I wish we were in the same room and I could just give you a big cousin hug. (laughs) Cousin! (laughs) But it's been a beautiful conversation. And um, you have grown up to be just, I could cry. I really could. You make me so incredibly proud to be your cousin. And, um, you know, uh, you make your mom and dad proud and everybody in the family. And I just want to thank you for um, being on my podcast. That's so cool. <laughs> that is just so cool. It, it is really cool. It's really cool. Uh, and, yeah. You know, it, blessed. So yeah, thank you yeah. for your, your hand in it because definitely raised by a village over here. So yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's our, our chat for today. And we look forward to folks joining in next week. Bye.